Hey guys, what's up? How you doing? Um, so you guys are stuck with me again this week. Uh, Gabe is not speaking. I am. Uh, I was in the bathroom when he first came up to. Did he talk about First Sunday Funday? He did not. All right, well, then I'm going to, so just make sure beforehand. Uh, next week, uh, we won't be meeting in here. Uh, it'll be the first Sunday of the, uh, of the month again. So I think it's July 2nd. That is uh, first Sunday, Funday. We will not be meeting here. We will be at the Staples House. So uh, be looking on the Facebook for that, for an address and everything. If you show up here, you will be by yourself. So make sure uh, you don't come here. You go there. It'll be fun. We'll hang out there, um, have some time in community together. Um, also, before we jump into the text and before we really get started, too, uh, somebody this week uh, came to me and asked me, and he said, I keep hearing Gabe and a bunch of other people talk about how we're going to be in Luke for like the next four years or something. Uh, what does that mean? What, what does he mean when he says that? What does that mean for me? Is there a purpose behind that? Um, and it reminded me of something that Laura said last week when Carlton was talking, um, that if you have a question, it's best to ask it because odds are, statistically, about 60% of everyone else in the room has the same question. So especially with us being in one book for so long uh, and really going through it and being in it for an extended period of time, I think it's good for us to occasionally go back and remind everyone of what it is we're doing and why. Um, so I just want to explain that really quick. One of the verses that this church was kind of built around and built on was Galatians 4.12, um, that it is... It is our job to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That, that's what we're here to do. It's Ephesians. It's not Galatians. <laughs> Ephesians 4.12. Yeah, one of the, the verses this whole church was built on. I don't know it. Um, but that's that it's our job to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, right? That it's our jobs to, to make sure that everyone that is here, that we, that we know the word, that we know what the scripture says, that we have opportunities to believe it in our hearts and chances to respond to that. And that we also give opportunities to obey it in our lives and in our actions. And so everything we do is kind of built around that to give you guys a chance to, to really equip you. So if you remember last year, we, we went through Galatians. That's where I was getting at with that. Uh, verse by verse, spent the whole year in Galatians so that we could really learn about God's grace, about uh, how we are adopted, how uh, understanding who we are um, in that and through that. Uh, and that was to equip us in that. And so then looking for something else for us to go through, looking at, you know, what's the next step for us uh, to better equip our people? Uh, who better to do that than Jesus himself? And so when looking at all of the Gospels, Luke is kind of by far the most comprehensive, the most in-depth of the Gospels. In the beginning, we looked at Luke, and he was a doctor. He was also a historian, so he was very uh, academically minded. Uh, I believe it's, it's 24 stories that are, that are unique only to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so even if we just went through those, that's half a year right there. And so uh, it does us best, it does you guys best, if we just slow down, go through it, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, really look and see what it was that Jesus was doing, um, who he was in that. And, and as of right now, the way that it looks is in order to, to really do the text justice and to be able to fully equip everyone in that, it's going to take a couple of years. And so right now we're on track to be in this uh, until about, I think it's 2019, um, and so just, I think it's good for us to, to be reminded of that every once in a while, to go back and say that this is to look at the life of Jesus, to see what it is that he did, to see how that applies to us. Give us those chances to know, believe, and obey so that we are fully equipped. Uh, that being said, uh, we'll go ahead and jump in and, and do the actual reading itself. So if you have a Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning to Luke chapter 10. We've been in Luke chapter 9, it seems like for the past like six months, we are finally out of it. We are in the beginning of Luke chapter 10. 
All right, I'm going to go ahead and read. This is where uh, Jesus sends out the 72. So after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. It says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way and behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever you enter, a uh, house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. And whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is said before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. And nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. All right, so just a, a little bit of, of understanding, kind of figure out where we are in this. Last week, if you guys were here, Carlton came up and spoke. He talked about uh, considering the cost of following Jesus, right? So that was the end of chapter 9, and in that, there was kind of this um, collection of encounters that Jesus was going through. And in each of them, uh, the, the people were somewhat struggling with whether or not they were going to be all in, and they were going to follow Jesus on this mission. And in each encounter, Jesus was kind of saying, hold up, before you make that decision, Consider the cost. Think about this. This is what you're going to experience. This is what you can expect. You can expect suffering. Remember, no one that uh, puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God. You guys remember that? And so now we're looking at chapter 10. We got these 72 people that are all being sent out two by two. So it's fair for us to assume these are the ones that got it. These are the ones that have considered the cost and have decided to follow Jesus. And um, I think one of the first things that we'll notice about this is really just kind of how cut and dry it is. It's very, it's very practical. Whereas last week, there were a lot of big ideas there. Uh, Jesus kind of was speaking in parables as he usually does. He was kind of speaking in stories. And this, it almost reminds me of like when a mom is sending their kid off to school, right? Remember to give your lunch money to the teacher. Remember to make sure that your teacher knows that you're riding the bus today. I know you usually forget that. Uh, make sure that you're nice to everyone. Like it's almost this list of commands as a mother is sending her kid off to school. It's very practical uh, it's very uh, duplicatable. It's very applicable to our lives. Uh, and so that's one of the ways I kind of look at this is look at it practically. What are these assumptions, you know, or insinuations that Jesus is making in that? And how does that apply to us? But before we really dissect everything in there, I think there's also something that you guys need to know. Uh, something that we kind of all need to get on the same page about. Um, because when Laura and I first started attending this church, it's like three, four years ago, uh, it was before we were even meeting in this room at the Parks and Rec. We were still in the afternoons. It was, we were just meeting in Gabe's living room. Even then, you know, it was like 10 of us, uh, we kept using this word over and over again. And that was missional communities, even way back then. And I think I speak for everyone, or at least most everyone in this room, in saying that this was the first time that we'd ever heard that word used. Now, would you guys agree with that? Is that kind of I would say most everyone here hadn't really heard of or seen missional communities didn't really know what that is. And now we're not the first ones to, to ever do missional communities. We didn't come up with it. We're following a lot of churches and organizations whose names nobody knows or cares about. Um, 
And, I mean, honestly, if you were to look at it biblically, I would say that we're following the model that the early church did and that Jesus himself did. But that this word, this kind of structure for, for church, this way of approaching mission and discipleship was kind of new to us. We hadn't really realized it. We didn't know what we are doing. And, and I say that to say that it still can get really confusing. Um, those of us that are on staff, and, and I, I know that I'm going to see them smiling and laughing as I say this, uh, we've spent, I, I guarantee it, I swear, like over 20 hours uh, over the course of several meetings, some that have literally taken all day, 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock. And the only purpose of those meetings was for us to answer one question. What does a missional community look like and how is it run? And even after 20 hours of the five of us sitting there and arguing and debating and really looking to this under a microscope, about the only thing we've come up with is that missional communities are important. That, <laughs> that we are here for the glory of God and that the best way for that to happen, for us to expand his kingdom, for us to speak and proclaim the glory of God, is in the context of communities living on mission. What that looks like and how it's run, we still really don't know. Have no idea. We can't seem to agree on it then. And, and so what all that means is that I understand that the Christian mission can seem overwhelming. It can seem confusing. We have no idea what it is exactly that we want to be doing. Um, and I'm here to also tell you that with this text, I'm not going to tell you what it looks like. I'm not sure that I will answer all of those questions. However, what I think that this text really does tell us is there's a, there's a quote by a guy named Jeff Vanderstill that I really respect. Um, I really like him. He's kind of one of the first people to coin this phrase, missional communities, for what they are. And he would say this. He would say, stop telling your people what to do. Quit giving them a curriculum. Stop telling them what to do. That's not your job. Instead, what your job is it's to teach them to think like gospel missionaries. And so that's what my job is here today. That's what my goal is, is that you guys would be equipped for the work of the ministry so that you can think like gospel missionaries. And I think that that's what this text does. This kind of list of commands that Jesus lays out for us helps to think, help us think like gospel missionaries as we're living out this Christian mission. So, that being said, now diving right into it then. Command number one. If you look at verse 2 right there, it says this. It says, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into that harvest. Step one, the first thing that God tells us to do is we have to pray. And not just pray, we have to pray earnestly. Uh, my wife will attest to this. My wife a lot of times will get really upset with me because I am the least observant person you have ever met in your entire life. I'm very scatterbrained. I'm usually inside my head, and so I don't notice things that are around me. So a lot of times, my wife will be in another room. I'll be sitting down in the living room or something like that, and she'll say, honey, can you get my purse? Okay, great. Where's it at? I don't know. I think it might be in the car. Okay, where in the car? I don't know. Why can't you just look for it? Maybe in the passenger seat? Okay, where exactly in relationship to the passenger seat is it most likely that your purse is? I need it to be that specific. And even then, sometimes I'll be gone for 10, 15 minutes, and I'll come back and be like, I have no idea. I have no idea what you're talking about because I don't know where to start. You tell me to find something, and I, I get the steps, but I don't even know where to start. And even when I was a kid, probably the worst thing my mom could tell me to do was to clean my room. And it wasn't because I was lazy. It wasn't because I didn't want to clean my room and I was dirty. and I was, but that wasn't the main reason. The main reason why I hated cleaning my room is because I walk into this room that's filled with toys, the bed's not made, there's all this stuff to do, and I'd get shell-shocked. I'd have no idea where to start. I'd be like, ah... And I'd have to go to my mom and continually bring her back in and say, is it clean now? No, honey, you see all those toys over there? I need you to take them, organize them, put them in your toy chest. Like, okay, 
Is it clean now? No, honey. You see all the clothes that are over here? You need to put them in the baskets, bring them to the laundry room. Is it clean now? I'd have to keep coming back. And so when you look at how that applies us to us, we look behind us, there are 26,000 people that don't know Jesus just in Dahlonega where we are. 26,000. That's one of those numbers that's honestly so big that we have to physically see it in order for it to really make sense, right? Every single black mark on this thing behind us represents a soul that does not know Jesus. And then unless someone comes into them, unless we have a miracle, unless Jesus reveals himself to that person, that person will die without the knowledge of Christ, without the grace of God. And so now then, you know, we see that, we recognize the need, and a lot of times we as church, we kind of punch you out there and we say, okay, good, save them all, right? And we're stuck like a little kid in a dirty room saying, are they safe now? Are we done yet? And so we constantly, we need to pray earnestly. First step is that you don't have to go in guns blazing and expect you to have it all yourself. Don't go in saying, okay, let's go save them all. Go in and say, okay, God, I'm here. I know that there are 26,000 people. Show me one. Give me, give me just one in my life. Show me the person that needs you and that needs me to be the one to give it to them, right? To begin to share it. Always begin to pray earnestly. One of the things that we're trying to work on in the youth that Sarah and I have been talking a lot uh, with the youth that are in here, going through a lot of these same ideas, is to always ask one question. That question is, what next, Lord? That in every step, everything that you're doing, you should always be praying, what next, Lord? So, okay, God, I'm here. I have chosen to live on mission for you. I have considered the cost. I want to do this thing called discipleship. I want to evangelize. I want to spread your word. I want to be a disciple for you. What next? Okay, God, I realize that in a place where I work that there is this guy there that I, that I see a lot and he does not know Jesus. What next, Lord? Okay, so I've had a couple conversations with him. I realize that there are some things that we have in common. He's a pretty cool guy. I, I, think, I feel like I'm getting to know him, like he's beginning to trust me. What next, Lord? Every single step, we need to begin to pray. And we'll realize then that you know, we're much less of a little kid stuck in a dirty room. You know, we're bringing our parents back in to say, show me what's next, show me what's next. And that begins to to ease our process, right? To get, break it up into chunks, to give us a way to continue to live our life. And that goes into command number two. Look a little bit later on, verse four. It says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, greet no one on the road. What he's saying is we gotta trust him. This is his mission, is it not? This isn't us. This is his mission. He is the one that was the center of all of this. We are showing him. We're not showing ourselves. And so if he's the one that's made the promises... If he's the one that is telling us how to do it, this is his mission. We have to trust that he's going to be the one to provide for us. And I think that that's, that's kind of cut and dry. That's really simple. We kind of get that when we read that. I think there's one more thing, though, to that, in that kind of second command that we look at. That it's a little bit deeper, I think even a little bit more important. That's if you look at that, just read those words there. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So you have no money, no way to carry your things, really no things at all. No sandals so you're tired, you're, you're going to need a place to say your feet are going to hurt. Greet no one on the road so no one will recognize you. You're not going to have any friends in these cities. How do you think that they ate every day? Where do you think they slept at night? And now obviously when you say that, you say the Lord will provide. Yes, the Lord provided all those things, but practically speaking, when we just look at it, how did they eat? Birds didn't come and drop it off every day. They had to depend on other people. They didn't just sleep on the road every single night. They were in houses, it says here. They had to go and ask people, can I stay here? They had to physically structure their lives so that they were dependent on community and on the mission. 
Their entire lives were built around it, so that mission was their life. And in everything we do, that's a great way for us to start off with this mission as well. We have to have the same kind of mindset. Again, Vanderstelt has this quote that I, that I really appreciate, and he says, if you haven't reorganized your life to fit the people you're on mission with, then you don't have a mission. If you haven't honestly sat down, been praying, what next, Lord? Have these people in your life and begin to structure your life so that it fits around their life as well, so that you guys have to be in community together, you have to be constantly seeing each other and talking to each other, and you don't have a mission. And that's just how it goes. That's just how we live life together. It's part of that what next Lord mentality. So look on down then. Command number three, moving on. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. This is probably a word that some of us have heard. Have you guys ever heard that, that phrase, people of peace, son of peace, or person of peace, Right? For those of you that haven't, that idea, that, that people of peace, basically what it's saying is just right here. If you go out and you say, peace be unto you, who does it sit on? Okay, who accepts that peace? Pretty much, who sticks around? When you announce that you are a Christian, as you are going through this mission, as you are praying, what next, Lord? As you are structuring your life so that it is built on this mission, built on community, who sticks out that doesn't know Christ? Who do you feel God leaning you towards? Who seems to always be there asking questions? Who seems to be there and enjoy your company regardless of the fact that you're one of those weird Christian guys, right? I'll give you guys an example. In my life, I just took on this new job, right? Uh, and I had worked there a little bit beforehand and I've just come back now. Uh, I work at a pizza place, right? Uh, <laughs> I work at a pizza place, right? And uh, while I'm there, they all know, I, I've made it kind of clear to them that my first job is that I'm a pastor here. And so all of them know me as, as the pastor. And so the other day, I was, uh, I was cleaning off a cart uh, in, the, in the kitchen, back where they're doing dish dishes. Another guy there, his name was Bradley, he was doing dishes beside me, and he told me, he's like, so you're a pastor, right? Yeah. And he said, I thought about going to church a couple times recently. But, you know, then I start thinking about, like, hypocrites and stuff, and I just, I don't really know if it's for me. Well, what do you mean by that? And so just off that basic conversation, we started talking for like 30, 40 minutes. And, and since then, he's asked me several other questions about what it is I believe. And I'll tell you another time, another girl uh, came into me and pointed at me and she said, are you Jewish? <laughs> no. She's like, I, I knew it was either Jewish or Baptist, one of those. <laughs> and I was like, well, I do, I mean, I go to a Baptist church, so I guess that's closer. So he goes, are you a virgin? You've met my wife. I've been married over like, I've been married almost six years. What do you think? She's like, I don't know. You Baptists believe weird stuff. <laughs> and since then again, she's come to me multiple times on different days and has asked me these questions based on what I believe and based on my faith. I've become almost like the resident pastor of Papa's Pizza and it's kind of cool. I, I've been able to see that these people at least are persons of peace in my life. I had another guy tell me that he has spiritual encounters using silent telepathy. I still haven't figured out what to do with him. <laughs> but I realize now that those are people of peace in my life. Those are people that have heard what I do, that heard what I believe, that know who I am, and they're still coming back and asking questions. So ask yourself, who's doing the same thing? Who are you engaging in conversation with, and who continues to come back? Those are the people of peace in your life. Those are the people that you need to start praying, what next, Lord, with? Those are the people whose life you need to begin to structure your life around. So then we get to command number four, where Jesus says, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, 
for the laborer deserves his wages. And do not go from house to house. I think that's the most important part right there. Do not go from house to house. What is he saying with this? And I think that too many Christians, and I think that we've all been there, but we even as a whole, Christian Big C, we as Christians, too many times we boil down and simplify the entirety of the Christian mission to a series of good conversations. I'll tell you what I mean by that. How many times have any of us have been in a small group or accountability group or whatever name you want to call it where we've asked, have you shared the gospel this week? Have you discipled anyone this week? And our response sounds something like, well, absolutely, yes. I met a guy at a Wendy's drive-thru just the other day or I was walking into a gas station and asked him how his life was and what his week was about and uh, asked him if there's anything I could pray for him for and he said, yeah, we prayed for a little bit and talked. It was a great conversation. I think we've all been there, right? I think we've all done that ourselves. And, you know, and there's something to that. I don't want to, like, dog those people. Those people that that are able to have those kinds of conversations, that are able to go out and just kind of unashamedly speak their faith, they have a boldness and a courage that I think that we should all strive for. To not be embarrassed, to not think if someone's going to be offended, but just to straight up, rubber hits the road, like, I am here to tell you the gospel, and I want to preach that to you. That is an amazing quality to have. However... It's a big however. If your idea of discipleship and mission is going to that guy in the gas station and praying for them and then leaving and literally never seeing him again, how can we possibly say that we have done anything to expand the kingdom of God? We haven't. That doesn't change people. I want you to think back. How many times has a single conversation completely and totally changed the direction of your life? How many conversations in line at the grocery store, at a gas station, or in a Wendy's drive-thru do you actually remember and can say, wow, that really led me closer to God? But now, if I were to say, think of people in your life that you lived with, positive or negative, your friends in high school, all of us here have graduated, right? Or at least, I mean, Grady hasn't, but For the most part, all of us here have graduated high school, and a lot of us are pretty far removed from it. I guarantee you, you still remember and can still feel the influence of the people that you spent with in middle and high school. The people that you lived with in college, people that you spent day to day with and lived together with, those are the people that actually influence your life. Those are the the ways that we actually will disciple people. Do not move from house to house. What he's saying is stick with them. Find the people of peace. Rearrange your life around them. Stick with them. Go as far as they're willing to go with you. As long as they keep asking questions, as long as they are willing to entertain you in this idea of Jesus, you are to keep going with them because that's how discipleship happens. That's how we know, believe, and obey. That's how we continue in this walk. Um, I saw this video the other day of this. uh, He's a hip-hop artist. He's a Christian. His name is Propaganda. I don't know if any of you guys ever heard him before. Um, But he was asked this question about discipleship. He said, what do you think discipleship was? And I really like his answer because he said that, you know, he grew up in kind of like the Southern California area, and so there was a lot of skaters there. There was this big kind of skateboard mentality, kind of like that Lords of Dogtown feel, uh, if any of you guys know what that is even. Um, But he said that a a lot of time, he spent a lot of time in skate parks, right? He would go out with these skaters, even as a little kid when he didn't know what he was doing. And he said that that kind of culture, what was built up there, is that if you wanted to learn a trick, if you wanted to know how to ollie, if you wanted to know how to kickflip, if you wanted to know, you know, how to improve whatever it is that you were doing, that really the only way you could do it is you had to go to the skate park and you had to watch. You had to look at the people that were skating there, that had been there for years, that knew what they were doing, watch them do the tricks over and over and over again, see what it is they're doing, and then begin to emulate it yourself. 
And now maybe if there was a guy there that was, you know, kind of known for helping out the people that didn't know what they were doing or something like that or saw that you were having struggles, maybe he would come up and say like, nah, man, you're doing it wrong. Do this. Put your feet here. Push off this way. Make sure you get enough air like this. But that basically you had to be in that community. You had to be a part of it. You had to be living life with them in order to improve and to fully join in. And it works the same thing in family. As we grow up, how did you learn? How did you become the person that you are? And probably, more than likely, when you were younger, you lived in a household and your parents, you saw what they did. You saw the life that they lived. And that as that was going on, they would pour into you. They would say, no, don't do that, and here's why. Or yes, thank you for doing that, and here's why I'm proud of you for that. Am I I not right? Does this not feel like how life in general, how we learn everything else, what makes us feel like the Christian mission, that discipleship looks anything different. We have to be willing to be in the same house with them, to eat and drink what they provide, be in their lives, stay with them, and continue as long as we can. Move on to command number five. It says, heal the sick and in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And I remember when I was in high school, I, I had a group of friends uh, that were a little rough right? Um, they, they were not believers. Really, none of the friends that I had in high school were believers. I kind of hung out with a lot of, like, the, uh, the drama crowd, a lot of those people. A lot of times, that can tend to be, uh, again, on the non-believing side of things. Uh, so, pretty much, my best friend in high school essentially was the town drug dealer. Um, if you wanted to try something new, if you were counting on a party, you could always go to him, and you could just say the word, snap his fingers, and there was a party that Friday. That's just kind of how it was. That's how it was expected, and I was his Christian friend. And my mom would always come up to me, and she was really worried about it. We had a lot of heated conversations and arguments with me as a kid, middle and high school, uh, about him and about this group of friends. And my mom gave the argument that I'm sure all of you have heard before, you could probably say it even better than I could, and that's that you are who you hang out with. Anyone ever heard that? Oh, it's a lot of, you know, growing up in, especially if you've been in church for a long time, it's an argument that we hear throughout the Christian church. You are who you hang out with. It's a a main source of fear of why a lot of Christians are unwilling uh, to go out and to meet unbelievers because they're afraid of being influenced rather than being the influencer, right? They're afraid that if I go and hang out with this rough crowd or whatever, if I'm around people that are drinking, that are doing drugs, that are, that are, are not living the same life as me, that I'm going to become more like them. They're not going to become more like me. And as ridiculous as that sounds and is from all the previous things that we've read beforehand, how we can see that that's ridiculous, that we're not called to that, there is something to that argument, right? We have seen it plenty of times before. How we can go and we can be in a crowd and a lot of times we can be influenced instead of being the influencer. And I think what Jesus is saying in this, it's a reminder. Remember when you were there, as you were eating what they eat, as you were drinking what they drink, as you were staying in their house and you were living life with them. The reason you are there is not to be like them, but for them to be more like me. We are there to heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. We are there to serve them and to preach the good news to them. So as we are living, we have to remember that. We have to live with gospel intentions. We have to know that everything we do in all aspects of our life, but especially as we are discipling, we must have intentions to spread the gospel. We are doing this for the glory of God. Um, I posted a video to the Facebook. I don't know if any of you guys saw it, but it's this thing called gospel fluency. Any of you guys see it or anyone ever, ever heard even that phrase before? There is this phrase, there is this thing called gospel fluency. 
And essentially, it, it looks like this. I think that I could talk about gospel intentions, gospel. Like, this is one of those times where I, I am a little kid in, in a dirty room. There's so much there. This is a year's worth of sermons in and of itself. This is something that, that is a lifetime worth of learning and seeing. So I don't even know where to start, but I can tell you a little bit about what it is. And that's like, all of us here speak English, right? In one way or another, we understand the English language. So if I communicate something to you, I can expect that because you speak English, the language that's going to come back to me is English, right? I can expect that as you are thinking and as thoughts are going through your head, the filter that it runs through in order to communicate to me is English, correct? And it would work for any other language if you spoke Spanish the same way. Your thoughts in your head would be filtering through what you understand about the language Spanish, and that's what would come out of your mouth. When we understand the gospel, when we are fluent in the gospel, fluent in what Jesus has, has done in our lives, who he is to us in every aspect, when we are fluent in what his mission is and the implications it has on our life, then no matter what it is that I communicate to you, the filter that your thoughts run through is Jesus. What comes out of your mouth isn't English. It is the gospel of Christ. And so what we have to remember in this, remember, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near. We must live with gospel intentions. Everything we do as we are living this mission, the filter that it runs through is Jesus himself. We are fluent in the gospel. Does that make sense? Last but not least, after all of those things that we've looked at, the, the last command here, it's kind of a big one. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. And nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, that's really grim, <laughs> right? Uh, I don't know if you guys remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it was, it was burned to the ground, right? God rained sulfur down, and even if you looked behind you, you would turn into a pillar of salt. So I would hate to be a town that is worse off than Sodom. But I think the biggest thing what he's telling there, right? I don't want us to get clinged down, and I'm like, if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to burn— I think most of what he's saying there is expect failure. Just expect it as a natural part of all of this. I'll just go ahead and let you know, not only will you encounter failure, in fact, most of the time you will encounter failure. I'd say 99% of the time, what's going to come out of your mouth is just failure, right? That's what's going to happen. I'd say sometimes you might encounter success, all right, and be happy when that happens. But we have to accept that as being part of it. i just give you another hint about it. Um, I saw Gabe looking back at me when we talked about the whole Wendy's drive through thing. It's because a couple weeks ago, we were at a staff meeting, and he told us, we were talking about missional communities, we were seeing how this goes, and he's like, all right, let's just kind of test it, and let's see how this works. Uh, I'm going to hold you guys accountable. You guys hold me accountable. Let's go preach the gospel to one person this week. Just go find someone, have the courage, and do it. And so we spent that week. I actually went on vacation that week. We were at the beach. I came back. And he's like, all right, who did it? And I think that the only people who did were Matt and Kyle. I think uh, Jay, myself, and Gabe, we all completely failed. And I, I told my story about it. I had this opportunity. I remember I had this opportunity where I felt like you need to talk to this guy, right? There's a dude. He had dreadlocks. Uh, you, you could tell he'd just come from the beach. We were waiting for the same elevator. And I was kind of like, no, I'm not going to. I choked up. I got scared. I didn't do it. We got on the elevator, and halfway through, it was like, this is stupid. I know that I'm supposed to. I need to just go ahead and do it. And the only thing that came out of my mouth was, wow, you can hear that vacuum on every floor. <laughs> His response was like, 
yeah. And then he, I'm pretty sure he just left on the floor before he was supposed to get off. I think he just pressed like, stop here, and he left. So my, my big gospel intention, the way that I shared Jesus with him, was wow, you can hear that vacuum on every floor. That's who's going to walk away knowing about the gospel. I've, I failed. I did. I absolutely failed. And that's okay. I remember another time that uh, we, uh, we were in our MC, right? This was earlier this year. And uh, I was switching jobs. I was, I was leaving a job that I had. And there were several people there that, uh, that were not believers at all. And, and I had built this relationship with them where we were talking every single day we worked together. I mean, just hour, two hour long conversations about stuff, anything, but especially about what we believed. Um, this person was a, was a Wiccan, had very kind of like Eastern and New Age philosophies. You know, they had a lot of goddess worship, a lot of kind of pantheism, and didn't under, even understand what I meant when I said certain things. And, and so there was a lot of really, really good stuff there, and I felt like we were getting somewhere, and I was building a relationship with him, but I was leaving that job. And so I was talking to my missional community, and I was saying, like, I, I kind of feel like I failed a little bit. I feel like I didn't cultivate those relationships quick enough. I, I felt like I didn't get anywhere with them, and I'm really upset that now that I'm moving on, I don't think I'm going to be able to continue with that. So I just, I don't know that I really even did anything. And it was Matt, and, and his words really stuck out to me and, um, and really spoke to me. And he said, well, do you feel like you did what God called you to do? I, I think so. I, I hope so. I mean, I, I did go out of my way, and I, I was really trying to cultivate these relationships, and we knew that we had gospel intentions behind it. Like, they, she understood what it was that I was trying to do. And he said, well, then success and failure isn't any of your business. Whether or not you succeeded, that wasn't your job. You are not called to success. You are not called to failure. You are called to obedience. You are called to discipleship. If you look at, uh, at Matthew 10, 19, you don't have to turn there or anything. I'm just going to read it really quick. But Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and he tells them, he says, when you are arrested, okay, when they take you away, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For when you are to say, like, what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. So saying when you open your mouth, it's not you that's coming out. So as much as it fumbles and as much as you stutter and as much as you only get out some stupid thing about a vacuum that you made up, it's not you that's coming out. It is Jesus. I find it amazing that if you look in the New Testament, every single time that it says that someone was filled with the Spirit of God, the very next thing it says is that they spoke boldly. When you are filled with the Spirit of God, you will speak boldly and no matter what comes out. Success, failure, whatever. You just have to understand that you are being obedient to Jesus and that that is what we are called to. I, I find it also really interesting in this. You read the very beginning of it. It says that he sent out the 72. Whereas in chapter 9, the very beginning of chapter 9, he was only sending out 12. And when you read through those chapters, it's not like you can see that the disciples are succeeding in anything. In fact, they had failure after failure. I love David Platt. He always uh, comments on Peter. He calls them the disciple with a foot-shaped mouth. He was constantly saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And it's amazing how failure after failure after failure somehow added up to immeasurable success. Somehow the disciples managed to do absolutely everything wrong, the wrong time, the wrong place, the wrong way, with the wrong intentions. But because they were being obedient to what God had called them to, somehow it added to all of us sitting in this room right here. They single-handedly started the early church the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. Sometimes we need to just have a foot-shaped mouth because probably the most important truth in this 
is when you read at the very beginning of those verses, and I just want to read it again here just to see if you guys can catch it. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them out ahead of them two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Regardless of where you go in this, as you are praying earnestly and asking yourself, what next, Lord? As you are rearranging your life so that it fits the mission. As you are seeing who those people of peace are in your life and you are pushing in and living life with them with gospel intentions, speaking who Jesus is constantly. Know that nothing you do, no place that you go, no person you are talking to, is Jesus not already there? He is only sending us. It says right here, he's only sending us in places where he himself is about to go. We are in good company, and regardless, success, failure, it's not our problem. It is Jesus, and that is what we are doing, and that is what we're here for. Obedience is what we look towards. So now I am ending. Um, we're going to move on. We'll pray in just a second, and we'll start taking communion. Um, as we pray and as we are, as we are doing communion, um, I want you guys to just be thinking about what this is, uh, where we are, uh, where we can begin to think like gospel missionaries in this. Um, especially communion, which is such an intentional time for believers, a time when we are really accepting, where we are considering the cost. We are saying, this is your body which was broken for us. This is your provision that we are taking in and we are accepting. That this juice that we are drinking, it represents the wine that you had on communion, that is your blood. It is the new covenant, the fact that you have died for our sins. And as we accept that, as we take that in, I encourage you guys, I challenge you guys to pray about these commands. Pray about these ideas and how does it apply to our lives? How can we begin to kind of show ourselves what gospel mission, what the, the Christian life is really about, what discipleship looks like? You guys would bow your heads and pray with me really quick. Dear God, thank you for you. Above all else, Above all things, God, in everything we do, Lord, I pray that we would always recognize you first. That we would realize who you are and we would just thank you and stop right then and say thank you for you. Thank you for the sacrifice that you have made. Thank you for overcoming death, for overcoming sin in our lives. Thank you for this text. Thank you for your word and for the way that you have laid out this mission that we are never gonna go someplace that you are not already with us. I pray today, God, that you would convict us all that you would challenge us in our hearts, challenge us to believe what we now know, to go forth and obey that. Um, as we go out this week, Lord, that we would be changed, that we, you would continue to work on us, that we would see each other the way you have called. Um, we pray that you would bless this communion and bless us as we take it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.